getting them to embrace their humanity in front of an audience can is a is a leap. And oftentimes people don't want to do that. They want to stick to the script. They're afraid they won't be taken seriously, whatever it is. But I think for most of the time, when you're talking to an audience, you're trying to move people. And the best way to do that is to talk to them like people. Hello, and welcome to the Message Makeover podcast brought to you by the Latimer Group, the experts in persuasive communication. I'm Dean Brenner, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dan Cooney. Hello, Dan. Good afternoon, Dean. How are you doing? We're doing great. Thanks for being here. It's going to be a good conversation today. Will be fun. Dan and I are joined today by our guest, Brian Gildenberg. Brian has maybe the coolest job title we have ever heard. He is the chief knowledge officer at Cantar Retail, a business consultancy that specializes in understanding human growth, creating insights on consumers, retailers, and developing growth strategies for their clients. Brian has served in this role for the last 22 years, both at Cantar and at Management Ventures, which was acquired by Cantar in 2009. In this role, Brian is a thought leader and a global voice on how the world has changed and is changing and the ways that retailers must respond to survive and thrive. Prior to his work at Kantar, Brian received his MBA at Babson College, where we were classmates, and a Master of Arts at the University of Cambridge in England. And, of course, the jewel on Brian's professional resume is that he has served on the board of advisors for our company, the Latimer Group, since inception in 2002. In all seriousness, the Latimer Group has been learning from Brian since our very first days, and he's played a major role in our strategic planning and our growth. Brian, it is our pleasure to welcome you to the Message Makeover podcast. Well, and uh, the next time I send out a resume with a jewel on it, I'll, 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 I'll remember us forever. So, uh, yes, no, it's, uh, it's great to be here, Dean, and, uh, and uh, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, we're going to have a great conversation today. So let me set this up a little bit more for our listeners. Our goal with this podcast is to give our listeners nuggets of insight on effective communication skills. You and I have known each other for nearly 25 years, and from the first time we met, I've always been amazed at your ability to explain things. You're one of the best I've ever seen at taking complicated topics and explaining them in simple ways. And for our client base, this is a critical skill. So what we're going to do today is just ask you some questions, see where the conversation goes, and really just pick your brain on what it takes to explain things in ways that the audience is going to get. Okay. Sounds, uh, sounds good. Let's, uh, let's hope we can do that. <laughs> Great. Dan, why don't you fire away first? Yeah, Dean, uh, and welcome, Brian. Uh, Thanks, Dan. I, Dean, I was thinking it would be fun for the audience to uh, first hear a little clip of uh, Brian doing what he does best, which is just a sort of an amazing thing where in this clip he conjures out of uh, his brain a country called, called Cosmopolica, a country of megacities. Let's listen to that here. So about Cosmopolitan, it's language, English with some regional dialects. Um, our official brand is Apple. That's the Apple store in Dubai. Our official coffee is Starbucks. And our official furniture store is Ikea, uh, which has its own language, as we all know. So, uh, so uh, that's the stats. Uh, the population of Cosmopolitan is about 500 million people. It's about 7% of the world. Uh, its GDP is about 20 trillion. It's about 28% of the world. The key point, it's probably 99% of market or mind share in terms of how we think about who we're selling to and who we're trying to reach. And Brian, you know, in that clip, it's it's an amazing thing. And and, in our work, we find that in order to persuade people around a new idea, you have to make them feel comfortable and graft on the new idea to constructs that they are already comfortable with. And I was wondering if that was partially the point of establishing these comfortable brands of Ikea, Apple, and Starbucks for the citizens of the fictitious Cosmopolitan. Yeah, and I think it, uh, 
it actually kind of gets at two things, and uh, it's probably useful to put a little context on what that what that presentation was for, and what the uh, and who the audience was. So the audience was a group of uh, of pretty senior global marketers around the world, uh, both people from within WPP, who's our parent company, uh, who's the largest marketing services company in the world, and then a lot of people who have global marketing responsibility. So what I was trying to do in those things was really was really was really twofold. One was to take a relatively complex idea, which is the idea that, you know, at its core, the major cities of the world, a subset of them are probably more similar to each other than they are to the countries that they're in. And um, what that does, there's a lot of implications to that for a marketer in terms of how they think about where and how they build brands. What I was trying to do, though, is that I was trying to leverage the fact in this case, I know the audience, and know that the audience are all kind of 99% of them live in one of these cities, right? So... By using sort of brands that are familiar to them in that case, it was a way to just, you know, it was, it was a way to just kind of make them realize the essential human truth that was kind of behind the basic idea and also just to make everybody laugh a little bit. This is a, this is a presentation – that presentation is one where your, your challenge is you have to do 15 slides at 15 seconds a slide. It's called, uh, it's called Ignite, which is a uh, – not at all what the Latimer Group teaches. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's basically like an idea slam that we run at our WPP events. So, uh, so and I hadn't been planning to do it until I got there and found out it was a thing. I'm like, oh, I have this, I have this idea. Let's see if it works. So, uh, so, uh, so that was that was kind of it. the The idea, though, and the you know the the picking, you know, just going through that was a way to get people laughing and comfortable with the with the basic understanding that you know, and I and this is part of what I get to do for a living because I work a lot in the the marketing and consumer products world. Most of what I'm talking about is about people, and you know, and that's that's something I can generally leverage, which is that, you know, the, the more human you can make the presentation, generally speaking, the more accessible it is. And I often find that with people that are learning to present, getting them to embrace their humanity in front of an audience can, is, a, is a leap. And oftentimes people don't want to do that. They want to stick to the script. They're afraid they won't be taken seriously, whatever it is. But I think for most of the time when you're talking to an audience, you're trying to move people. And the best way to do that is to talk to them like people uh, and not talk, to, not talk to them like uh, PowerPoint slide outputs. So, so that's just that. But yes, I think your basic observation is dead on correct, which is just a way to try to make, the, uh, make an idea that is a little bit brain jarring, a little bit more accessible. Yeah. And, and- – you know, we use this term to describe what you did there. We use the term standard frames, right. okay, to to explain the use of metaphor, example. Maybe it's something totally fictitious or maybe it's something entirely known and relatable to the audience. But but really, it, it, in a way, it's, it's a form of storytelling, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think what you'll find too is that um, I'm a uh, – my creative skills tend to be a little bit more what I would call left brain than right brain. You know, I'm not a uh, – Dean, you've seen my visual aids. I'm, I'm not I'm, – I have no talent in that space whatsoever. Um, and um, and most, of, most of the things I create that are creative are – if you diagnose them, they're pretty logical. Um, and oftentimes the standard – I like the phrase frames that you used to introduce this year because it is actually kind of the way I think it's literally framing the problem. Yeah. And the way – you know, the, a lot of the work that – 
as an analyst that I do is kind of merging together the quantitative world and the real world. Mm -hmm. um, so oftentimes you frame things in the quantitative world through axes on a chart or something like that. Right. And basically all that cosmopolitan example is is just two different – it's just different axes for a way to looking looking at the world. And yeah. you just – instead of having an axis for here's a country and here's cities within it, you just pull the axis down and say, well, here's the world. Here's the big cities. And oh, yeah, some of these cities actually, if you looked at them this way, look a little bit different. So it's a way of just reframing a problem, if you will. You know, and it's a thing that most people know, especially people that travel to most of these mm -hmm. cities. You know, if you've ever been in an international airport, you have a pretty good feel for what I'm talking about there, right? Yeah. Which is they all look exactly the same. Totally. They all the same HSBC heads up. You know, they're all the same thing. And, and they're all powered by Accenture. So, um, so, um, so that's, that's great. Um, so, so, yeah, but it's that, that framing, the framing is often an exercise in just kind of taking one or two relevant ways to look at it and making yeah. those things the most important. And then from there, organizing the rest of the conversation around those one or two ideas. And you know, if you're a, if you're an analytics type or a marketer, you would call that a segmentation exercise. If you're a communicator, it's a story. Um, but they're really they're they're actually quite similar, at least to me, in terms of where they come from. Yeah, you said something once. I heard you say it, and I actually wrote it down. You said most things are more similar than different, but most people believe that their experiences are largely unique. Yeah. So what you what what you're doing there is is you're basically trying to take the perception that what I know or what I feel or what I've experienced is completely different than the person next to me, and you're trying to create common ground. Yeah, absolutely. You know? absolutely. It's, it's, the, it's a slightly more analytic version of the classic um, presentation tip of imagining everybody in their underwear, which <laughs> I, I don't have a great – I don't have a great tolerance for things like that. So that's just visually horrifying to me most of the time, particularly now that I'm looking at you. Um, but, <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you. but yeah, so, um, but, it, but in essence, that's it. It's right. You know, I mean, the, the people in the audience are more similar to each other and more similar to you than, than they're going to be, than is conscious in their mind. So, right. so it's one of the things that, you know, I know having worked with you guys and uh, for a long time, mm -hmm. I know it's a big part of what you preach, which is, you know, really knowing the audience mm -hmm. and, I find that when I've tried to recommunicate your teachings to other people, mm -hmm. they sometimes find that more difficult than they need to. It's like, well, no, it's like you don't need to know everything about the audience. I mean, 99% of what the audience is going through is what you're going through during the day. You know? right. You've got people that are preoccupied because the kid's sick at school and they're having XYZ going on in their job and their boss is not exactly who they dream they be, whatever it is, right? I mean, sure. they're, they're, their essential humanity is pretty consistent. So all you really need to do in that case is just know a couple of things that right. help orient them to the idea that you know their reality. And that's all you're trying right. to accomplish. That's really well said. You don't have to memorize their resume. You no. don't have to know what their GPA was in college. No. Uh, you just have to know a few basic things that are really common to the human existence. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we talk about it a lot. Like once you know, for example, that somebody might have a military background, that tells you like 25 things. Oh, yeah. Right? And, and it gives you a way to frame things for them because they have a way of looking at the world. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and just and just, sorry, Dan, wanted to just jump in one second, because there's another thing that's going on within that frame is also this. And, and Brian referred to it. It's making things tangible. Mm -hmm. And there's the Chip and Dan Heath book, Make It Stick. And they're always talking about making it as concrete as possible when you're talking about it. And I could just tell there's this idea that you were throwing up there when I watched it on YouTube a couple of times of Cosmopolitan. Like what? And then as soon as you said Ikea, Apple, Starbucks, and there was laughter through the audience, you could just hear them, like, relax into that new idea. So, like, that making it tangible is another piece of that, which yes. I thought was really effective. Yeah, and it's it's become – it's that's been an interesting journey for me over the last few years because as uh, – 
as I'm sure you communicate and as I'm, you discover in your own office here, right? You know, a lot of uh, a lot of male presenters grew up with sporting metaphors as a way to as a way to make things accessible. Yeah. You know, and obviously you're now you're encouraged for good reason to use those less often yeah. than you than than maybe you have in the past because sure. your audiences are a mixed bag of people that uh, may or may not understand them. So I have found myself gravitating back towards, you know, iconic brands and popular culture more than sports, even though, you know, I could give you a 10-minute diatribe on why a great work team is like a good basketball team, and we could go deep on that if you want. But but for people who have never played basketball, that's not terribly helpful. Um, so trying to figure out what those, you know, what those – Highest common points of humanity are, and you know, figuring out how to how to amplify how to amplify those so that you can you can be approachable to as many people as possible. That's been that's been a real learning for me over the last few years. Well, and that, and that right there is a really good segue into another example of a storytelling device or standard frame that you used. And and I'll, I'll just tee it up for the listeners here. There's a piece that you and, and one of your colleagues wrote called "Digital Adolescence." And and what you're cha- what you're talking about there is is the the, the changes the growth of the digital economy and the digital world. And, and, and you start off by challenging what you, you describe as a very basic assertion. And, and, the, ch- and, and the assertion is that the, the, the pace of change in our digital world has A, never been faster, and B, is going to do nothing but accelerate over time. This is the slowest rate of change we will ever see. And, and your point is you go to any conference, any digital conference these days, those are two assertions that are never challenged. And your your point in what you wrote here is that you don't actually believe it's true, and you believe the real issue isn't speed, but rather size and the size of the change. And and the way you make your point, and it's a long piece, which I'm not going to do justice to here. I'm not even going to try. But the way you made your point is you tied it back to something that many people can relate to, and that is – experience with teenagers. And I'm just going to read a quick passage, and then, and then we'd love to hear more uh, from you on this. As we sought to make sense of this, the obvious metaphor that leapt to mind was simply teenagers. Teenagers aren't necessarily growing faster than when they were little kids, but rather the growth is bigger, more significant, and harder to manage. For companies today, managing their growing omni-channel world is a lot like parenting adolescence which to me is an amazing way of describing it because you're going at the issue through a common experience, whether somebody has their own children or not. We've all dealt with teenagers yeah, and we've all been one. Yeah, most of us have been one. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And and we just thought that was another really great example of this concept of framing the issue. Well, I think there's – and yeah, there's a couple of things that that come out there. One, I do find – and this is now – you know, you you and Dan had some trepidation about having me on this podcast because there's certain things that I do as a presenter that you would never want anybody to do in your classes. Um, so, um, and but at the same time, I think when you get to a certain level of experience, one of the most one of the most interesting things you can do is challenge a commonly held piece of wisdom mm-hmm. and to get people to think about something they hear all the time. For the specific problem that I'm an, that we're analyzing here, which is really. The growth of the Amazon business within a bis- within a company that has sold things through other retailers for a really long time, it's just – I mean it was just a simple observation that speed wasn't – that it was just an obs- – that that observation wasn't helping anybody. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you weren't seeing it change behavior in a meaningful way and, you know, and, it, and it did kind of strike home that it's like, OK, well, 
you know, the problem isn't that Amazon's changing that fast. Amazon kind of does what it does. The problem is that Amazon is now, I was talking to a client on the way here, you know, one of the top 20 consumer product companies in the, in the U.S. Amazon went from nowhere to being one of their top 10 retailers in three years. So that's, that's the problem. The problem is that Amazon's changing quickly. It's the problem is, is that Amazon's relationship to the context of the business is changing quickly. And that's one where, and that's one where it was the size and the, you know, all those things kind of jumped in. But one of the things that, again, I don't know that I would recommend to too many people that haven't been doing this for a while, but, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, adrenaline is a great producer of simplification and metaphor. That idea popped into my head in front of an audience. So, um, so, um, and I just kind of blurted it out in the middle of a speech and it's like, yeah, you know, it's your commerce team. It's kind of like managing teenagers. And I saw a couple of people who are really smart who are sitting in front of me who are, again, part of our client, part of our clients. And, they nodded really knowingly. It's like, oh, that worked. I got something here. Mm-hmm. And one of the virtues of getting a lot of reps in front of an audience, mm-hmm. which is still the single best way to get really good at presenting to an audience is to do it a lot, mm-hmm. is you learn, you learn when those moments mean something. And, uh, and you know, I can't replicate the adrenaline of being in front of a crowd unless I'm on a really tight deadline. Um, um, and even then, it doesn't really work. And, and, I, and you don't want to replicate that that often. So, But I think when something pops in your head like that and you see people respond to it, it's something you file away. And that was, that was 18 months ago when that happened. And you know, I went back and forth with a colleague. It took us about six months to develop the outline and write this thing. But that all came out of one, one sort of momentary flash of inspiration. And again, that was just the adrenaline of an audience that kind of drove that. So. There's two things well, I want to. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Dan. You want to say something? There? Yeah. Well, Brian, I was just going to say, it those the adrenaline of the audience, yes, but it's also you were capable of in the moment receiving that input of the either smiles or nods from the the, the front row of people that you you know respect, and that's important. You know, for the people we're talking to and teaching is the idea of don't be so busy, you know, in your own head about what you're going to say next that you don't miss something an important piece of information that's coming back to you in that in that point of presentation. That is such an important point, Dan, and I think it is it's really in the end it's the great virtue of preparation. Preparation allows you to be present in the room and that is such an important thing. And um and it's that's you know, and I, I learned I, I learned this weirdly, um, you know, in marching band when I was fourteen. It's like you had to memorize the music so you could remember where you were going. You were trying to do two things at once. And if you didn't know the music, you couldn't march properly. So right. so and the music just had to be second nature so that you could execute the thing you were trying to execute. Cool. And yet without preparation, yes, if you're gonna be so concerned with your ability to deliver that's where you run. You get into so much. You can cause your. You miss so many opportunities that way. So that's where. The, that's why. That's why preparation is so critical. And you know, we went back and forth on this. I I do a lot of presenting, so I don't have the luxury of you know spending a couple of days to prepare every time I do it. Um, but the one thing I do is I spend my I've spent most of my adult life studying one thing. So um, so it's that that preparation is is where is what I draw from is you know years of knowing a, a it topic might not be preparation for the specific event, no, but, but it's, it's preparation on a macro level. Absolutely, yeah. 
And by the way, if you read anything like I, I'm, several things popping into my head here as, as we're having this conversation, I just recently watched Ron Howard's movie um, Eight Days a Week on the Beatles, hmm. right? And and it's the same idea that they talk about, and everybody referred to them as this overnight sensation, but they really weren't. They were an overnight sensation that was ten, fifteen years in the making. Oh, sure. And they talked about the thousands upon thousands of hours that they had played together, so they could literally read each other's body language and facial expressions, which then allowed them to riff a little bit and be. Become creative in the moment because they were outside of their own head. Um, I, I'm going to use a very, very uncomfortable uh, sports metaphor or sports reference here. Not that I know Bill Belichick really well, but I've actually met him, and mm-hmm. and I'm a football fan. You listen to what he actually talks about, and he doesn't give away much. But he's you've heard you you hear him, and it's mentioned in a couple of the books about him. That everybody that plays for him has to not only know their own job cold, but has to know the responsibilities of the person to their right and to their left. Yep. Right. So it's the exact same idea. If I'm trying to remember inside my own head, I must do this, then I must do this, then I must do this. You'll never improvise. No. So you know we're always drawing that connection between preparation and actual effective delivery, and and uh, you know I think this this conversation here is totally spot on. Yeah. Well, and that's the um, the the other thing is is that you know in the end the you know and. It's if you're an athlete that the phrase they always use is playing fast, right? right. You know, when you know everything, the basics so well that you can play at high speed and, and not have to worry about every every step you make. Music's the same thing, right? If you're a musician, everybody's had this experience of you know mm-hmm. getting getting into a place where everybody knows the basic stuff so well they can just riff or jam or whatever right. it is. And there there is yeah when you do a lot of when you do a lot of presenting, there's certainly an element of that uh, of that to it. But the but to get back to the framing idea too, I think that this is an example of this is an example of uh, a frame that wasn't built with axes and quantitative stuff. It's also just built out of something I think I said earlier, which is you know so much of what you need to do to get an audience to move is your their people. So you know the more human you can make the story you're telling, usually the better off you are. Now look, I mean you know. My uncle's a neurosurgeon, so you know he invented stereotactic surgery to help alleviate Parkinson's disease. If he's trying to teach people how to do that, I don't think he's going to use IKEA metaphors to do that. I mean, there are certain types of presentation <laughs> that don't lend themselves particularly well to making them overly human. Maybe, but in the end, if you're but he trying, might talk about a patient. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, uh, he, uh, he interviewed Muhammad Ali, actually. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, but um, but when you when you when you look at it, yeah, I think you're the closer you get to. The closer you get to the humanity of the idea you're trying to communicate, the better the chance you have of somebody either remembering it or doing something with it. So, so um, you know, people are you know, people are people, and you know, the 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 close the, the closer you can bring it, the better off you're going to be. This topic, the digital adolescence one, is a huge one for our clients right now, mm-hmm. and I've just watched too many other consultants try to explain to them in with boxes and flowcharts and process charts how to do it and it's none of it's really landing the way that I thought it should and it just seemed like somebody that just seemed like one of those things where somebody just needed a way to think about it so amazing uh something else I want to go back to uh you talked about reframing a problem yeah okay and in our world where we're coaching people or 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 teaching them in workshops Inside large organizations, there's a lot of internal communication that we coach people towards. Mm-hmm. And regardless of industry, whether it's military engines or delivery services or oil and gas, yeah. big companies have a lot of the same DNA. Sure. A lot of the communication is around approval for my budget, support for my idea, yep. a, a, a fight for resources, You know, you know, go down the menu. 
And and one of the things we say all the time, and I'd love to just hear your thoughts on this, is that if you can first get alignment around the problem, you're probably 75 or 80 percent of the way of getting oh, approval. Oh, God, yeah. And, and, and you know, what I say to people is you could have the greatest solution in the world, but if I don't see the problem the way you do or I don't prioritize it the way you do, your solution isn't very valuable to me. Yes. And and, and that is different for that, – that is hard for a lot of people. They want to go right to their elegant solution and they skip over – the identification of the problem. You, you see, I'm, you're nodding, so I'm assuming you see this all the time. Yeah, this is uh, this is good radio. I'm nodding vigorously. So, uh, so, so, uh, so, as I as I damage my reputation as an effective communicator. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, no, you're exactly right. And this notion of framing the problem has a couple of different attributes to it. One of which is in a big company, and most people that are in a in a company know this. Just getting agreement around. What the information is you're going to use to frame the problem is a really big step. And yes. this, is, this isn't really a communication effort. It's an organizational effectiveness one. Mm-hmm. But you want to be very smart and thoughtful around even the information flow that the people you're communicating to are going to use to, um, are going to, use to solve the problem. And just understand that a little bit. So, um, and then the second one is, 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 yeah, it's just understanding how the person who's you're trying to convince – how they're defining success. That's where I'd start from. And to understand where their definition of success may have overlap and consistency with yours and where it's different and then trying to understand why. Because um, in big companies, often if you're trying to move somebody, you know, that person is literally paid to have a different definition of success than you are. Right. So, so, um, so you've, sometimes you've got to figure out what that point of commonality is going to be and really leverage that in order to get that uh, – in order to get that prioritized, and I and I really do think the uh, the la- the last piece around the uh, the framing is, you know, and this is actually something that I learned from uh, a woman named Bonnie Brooks who used to run the Hudson's Bay Company in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I was watching her speak once, and she said she's talking about change management and mm-hmm. getting people motivating people to change. And said she goes, look, she goes, everybody talks about the importance of having a vision when you're talking about change management. She's like, yeah, that's great. Um, so she goes, she's like, a lot of guys I know really like vision. Like, I really want to get out there and talk about their vision, right? She goes, I found this a couple of things that are a little bit more useful than a vision. Number one is being able to tell the person you're trying to change where they are in that vision, which is something people always forget to do. Yes. So here's my so here's my solution, and um, depending on who you're communicating it to, being able to paint a little bit of a picture of what that solution is and where the people in the audience are, and then just if you've got the if you've got a, a view on this, why it's better. You know, right. you can often get people to move and change if you just kind of explain to them, you know, why in the end it would be better for them to do that. Yes. And uh, so often when you're trying to move people, you – again, that's the point we've been making back and forth a couple of times. You get very wrapped up in what you're trying to communicate and mm-hmm. sometimes it's just easier to talk about them and where they're and, – and where they need to go. Most people communicate from a very selfish place. Yeah. And, and not, not intentionally. No, it's, I think a lot of it's born out of insecurity, um, yeah. you know, especially in the presentation environment. You know, right. it's, a, it's a nerve-wracking experience and you want to try to control much, as much of it as you can. Yeah, and, and if, by the way, tying back to another thing we said earlier, if you are struggling to remember what you want to say on slide four, it's going to be very hard for you to be of service to your audience and be present for your audience and say, hey, how do I make this relevant for them? Because yeah. you're just trying to survive the meeting. Right. Anyway. Yes. Uh, so, so let's add another element to this. So, so we've been talking about framing and context and making things real and human for the audience. Uh, what happens and d- how does it change things if all of a sudden now you have to add in an element of brevity and, you, and, your t- and time is not your friend and you don't have time to 
you know, slowly but surely evolve it. And, and you know, sometimes the time limit is real, like you have five minutes to speak or, you know, 60 seconds if you're on TV. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes it's just you're, you have plenty of time, but you're dealing with attention span. Yes. Which is the more the bigger problem in today's world, right? You know how does how does the need for brevity and getting to the point quickly complicate the standard framing or the storytelling device? In I think your mind? I think it makes it more important. Strangely, um, in that it depends, and now it really does depend on what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there, so I'll give you three ways to think about that, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Like if you literally have a limited amount of time, mm-hmm. um, then it's it's three things, and that's the class, it's the oldest technique in the book. But the three the the virtue of three things is it works well for human memory. It's got a good rhythm to it, and there's also just something too. You know, I was a history of philosophy major, so you know it's you know it's thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So mm-hmm. what it does is it ensures you're going to give people a relatively nuanced way of looking at something. If mm-hmm. you have three points, particularly if you're conscious about making the third point not something that's just on a line with the other two. So, you know, with three points, you can make a triangle or you can make a straight line. Mm-hmm. So with your three points, make sure you're making a triangle so, mm-hmm. so that you're covering as much surface area as you possibly can in a short period of time. So you start with one point. You can usually flip that point kind of on its head in some way. That gets you the line. It's your third point that's the – what am I trying to say? The amount of surface area you, you need cover. a standard frame right now, Brian. I do. Well, it's a triangle. So the amount the amount of sur- I just haven't expressed this this way before, and uh, but it's a really interesting idea. The amount of surface area you cover in a three part answer is entirely determined by where the third point is in proximity to the first and second point. So that's that, and that that's the definition of the. A bit, the breadth that you can cover, and you know, you're a sailor, you know this. Mm-hmm. So you just drew a sail in your picture. Um, so, uh, so, and figuring out what the sheet needs to look like is a really good way to think about that. So mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's one. I think the second one is, is that if it's if complexity is your enemy, mm-hmm. um, and you've got a relatively short period of time to explain something complicated, that's where the frames and the metaphors become essential. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I've got five, you know, if I've got five seconds to explain to a CEO why he's got a problem with his Amazon business, I say, well, look, your Amazon business is like raising a teenager. Boom. So that's that's where the that's where you just trust the frameworks and trust the metaphors that you've mm-hmm. that you've built as a way to help people process the world. Mm-hmm. You can get a really complicated idea through the eye of a needle um, relatively quickly through metaphor, and that's uh, and that would be the, the 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 second piece from an attention span point of view. This is now you know Latimer Group one hundred and one, right? So find the thing about you that is engaging as a person. And just amplify it and modify it in front of the audience. So, you you know, if you have a forty-five minute presentation, your problem isn't time; it's it's attention. So, so, and that's where you just need to figure out what the way is that you break through the PowerPoint and re-engage the the whatever they call it, the system two brain, right? The part mm-hmm. of the brain that actually thinks about stuff. And that part is probably better engaged for most people through emotion than logic and yeah. generally engaged by responding to whatever whatever the thing is that's most human about you that you can do in front of an audience, do that. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, I obviously have what I think is a decent sense of humor, um, though <laughs> though many disagree. Um, so, uh, so I mean, that'll, that'll be the technique I use. But, uh, but everybody... You know, as I'm sure you've told a hundred people in your own polite way, if you're not funny, if you're not funny in a small room, don't try to be funny on a stage. Um, so, right. so um, you know, and there's some people that can pull that off, and some people that don't. But just finding that humanity is a, 
big one. And by the way, the you'll notice that what I did to answer this question was the three part answer of yes. of the the you know and the third part, which is the really weird one, stretch the sale. So right. So and I just I, it was, I was as I was giggling to myself, I was going through the answer. It's like I'm going to do this actually to answer this question. A story within a story, a frame within a frame. I am uh, I am the Matrix. So uh, <laughs> there is no spoon. Hey Brian, um, I was interested. I, I love your uh, your podcast, Retail Soundbites, and um, particularly a couple of the ones you did recently. The I'm Not So Sure, uh, Part One and Part Two. I love that uh, as a title. Um, very intriguing. The um, things that people believe are true and are truisms, but uh, you go through them point by point, pro and con. But your idea of communicating in this volatile and ambiguous, complex world. Let's listen to a clip. Uh, when, when you're talking about uh, giving some thoughts on what a leader needs as far as uh, skills in, in this environment. I think right now, from a leadership point of view, I would be leaning way in on people whose skill set lends itself better to a volatile world. These are people that are going to be better at replanning than planning. Um, these are people that are going to be very comfortable with the A in VUCA, which is ambiguous, and the C, which is complex. These are these are people that are going to know how to take the complex and ambiguous and make it more simple and more tangible and know they're going to need to do that more often. You've got to have people leading in a volatile world that love to communicate. Um, and that love to communicate to people in a way that might almost be a little overbearing, um, but that's probably essential. So, Brian, when you say that communicators, uh, that communication is such an incredibly important thing, um, and and I think you said, and in, in, in one of the points you made is, and, and maybe in a way that's almost overbearing uh, in, in a style of communication, what did you mean by that? Well, I, th- I think there's a couple of pieces to that. One is that more communication is generally speaking better than less. So um, by overbearing in that, I, I just kind of meant it's like, look, you're you're just going to want to you're just going to want to communicate to people to a point where they're like, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know. Okay, over communicate. Yeah. It, once you've gotten there, during in times of uh, extreme change, you're, you're you're usually pretty good. You will find that a couple of things are true. One, one thing one thing is is that you are you you are going to see that. In times of change, people are trying to make sense of it. Any gap in communication will be filled by someone's imagination. And, uh, yep. and you know, I love people, but you don't want them imagining what's happening because, again, to get back to one of the points we made earlier, people tend to be very them-centric when they're imagining what's happening in sort of a period – in a period of change. And they're so often wrong about that <laughs> that it's really terrifying. But, um, but so people will imagine a whole bunch of things that are happening to them that are just simply not the case. So and, – and the other thing is most people are smart. Um, you know, and most people, and most people, if you explain to them what's legitimately going on, you know, obviously, with the, you know, the degree that you can, you know, work for a publicly traded company, there are things you can talk about and things you can't. But, you know, but most people presented with, you know, the facts on the ground, you know, provided they're relatively healthy mentally, will will build, will build a better scenario going forward than they would otherwise. The other piece that I, that I thought was important in that is, in that last clip, is about the, the management of uncertainty, and this is the the original the, that whole thing is a riff on why that phrase VUCA, which is a very common acronym that people use, it's a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. 
I react to that because I've seen too many companies use that as an excuse to not do things. And this is now just based on my own experience. And uh, and it's what I was reacting to is that you know that the world is volatile and uncertain. And it's like no, it's either one or the other. If you know the world is going to be volatile, that's certain. So plan for that. You know, manage that way, and don't. Because I think so often people just write off their ability to do something because the world the the world's volatile and changing. It's like, well, yeah, well, it's going to be that way. So build skills to deal with it. And uh, but yes, I think frequent frequent recalibration of where you are is pretty is a pretty good way to get through stormy weather. And you know, and I, uh, this company has a this company has a penchant for sailing metaphors. And uh, but I do think that if you are sailing in rough water, one would imagine that there is a lot more communication on the boat than when you're sailing in smooth water. Uh, otherwise, nobody has any idea what it is that they're supposed to be doing because it changes quite frequently. And to be honest, the conditions don't make it possible to process the total boat. If you're worried about holding on to the boat, you're, you're not going to process the total boat as well. It's just you know human nature. So sure. uh, you're going to solve you're going to solve your own problem first. So you got to give people the context of what's going on with the total boat sometimes, or they'll get lost in their own reality. Mm-hmm. I think when you're talking about you know it's important to get the clarity the first time, and when you're saying just make sure you're over communicating because in the end it will save you if you you know leave that part out or those two parts out you're probably going to have to communicate 10 times yes. to back up and get people to be no 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 that's not <laughs> that's not the case uh, when you're they're thinking about them them being them centered right and that's where i think that the the way in which you communicate is almost more important than what you communicate mm-hmm. and uh, in specifically in times of change cuz the challenge is is that if you do it in a way in which you're not you know pick your phrase, empathetic. Mm -hmm. Without empathy, what people will do is they will pick apart the changes in what you're communicating Mm -hmm. over time. Oh, well, you said this, and now you didn't say that, and now you said this. The empathy is so important to building the trust because there is no high change situation Mm -hmm. in which what you say isn't going to be different sometimes from one thing to the next. Mm -hmm. You have to let – you have to earn the – you know, you have to earn the trust of the people you're communicating to. Mm So that when you have to change what you've said, <laughs> they don't think you're lying to them. And that's, right. uh, and that's a big – that's where putting yourself in their shoes a little bit and making sure that your communication is, you know, is first, oh, first, how are you going to stay on the boat? Second, I'll tell you where the boat's going. But first, let's, sure. Make, sure, let's, make, sure let's make sure your handholds are good and your carabiners are, are, are right. Let's, let's get that done first. Now, now I'll share the plan. So, right. But if you don't do that first, the, all the person's going to do the entire time you're communicating where the boat is going is wondering whether, whether they're going to be on it when it gets there. Well, you're, you're, the, yeah. the problem he's describing here, Dan, is po- the, the political environment in our country 101 right there. We're not going down that track. But, I mean, mm-hmm. this, is why so much, this is why so much communication around politics isn't landing yeah. because people aren't the politicians, all of them to a certain degree guilty of this, aren't doing what you're talking about. There's yeah. not a lot. There's only an empathy for people who already agree with me. Yeah. So this has been a great conversation, Brian. Dan and I really appreciate your time and, and joining us here today. And, and, and as we always do on the Message Makeover, we like to end with uh, specific walkaway points or specific pieces of advice for our listeners. If, if There's a lot of ways you could go here because we've, we've covered a lot of ground. But you know, based on the conversation we've had today, what is the what is the golden nugget of wisdom that you would share with our listeners that you really want them to remember? I think the one thing I would leave people with, and I, I won't use my cheat of three. So uh, the one <laughs> thing I would I would leave people with in this case is be comfortable with the fact that the more 
you express the only thing that makes you I mean the thing that makes you really good at expressing your ideas is expressing your ideas and you know there is just no substitute for take the opportunity seize the chances you know don't you know speak up in meetings you know ask the question you know take the you know take the presentation opportunity take some risk yeah, do just do it i mean the the one you know you know malcolm gladwell has that wonderful theory about you know if you do something for 10,000 hours you get pretty good at it mm-hmm. you know I, I read that in the book and i kind of filed it away and then about a couple of years later i was stuck on a plane once and i was in the middle seat and i couldn't do much so it was um I just thought about it for a minute. I'm like, hey, you know what? It's about I'm about 10 years into my presenting career, doing about 1,000 hours a year. It's about when I started to feel like I really got the hang of it. Mm-hmm. Now, for those people that aren't going to present for 10,000 hours, that's not the issue. But the issue is, is that the simple experience of distilling what you're trying to say down in a way that sticks with people – that's a, that's a big piece of it. And I think that the second piece is, is that the more you do it, the more you'll trust yourself when your humanity kicks in. Mm-hmm. And you'll trust yourself when you know you can connect with people because everybody knows how to connect with people in their own way. Mm-hmm. You'll be able to trust yourself doing that in that setting. And I think that as much as anything is the thing that will make anybody who you know, presents their ideas, needs to distill their ideas or needs to motivate and change behavior – that's the thing that you're you're going to do. So I would just I would take as many opportunities as you can uh, to get better at it, and just take and take risks in those opportunities. You know, you know. In the end, the other thing is too that I would probably just add is just remember, especially from a presentation setting, you all know this as listeners to a presentation. No one goes into a presentation unless they're really sadistic and they don't like the person presenting, which is very very rare. Wanting it to suck. Everybody wants it to be good. No one wants to be in an audience in which they are uncomfortable and not thrilled with where the presentation is going. Everyone's rooting for you. That's a huge home field advantage. That's great. That's great. Dan, any, any parting thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, along the lines of um, some of uh, Brian's takeaways, but the more human you can be in front of an audience, the better it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, be do that thing that you can do in front of an audience and amplify that thing. I, I like that um, because people are going to relate to other people, making things tangible. And then the uh, last one is understanding where the decision makers, you know, what the decision makers' definition of success is, yeah. and then work back from there. Like, what's the Venn diagram with your definition of success? And that's going to put you on the right track to being persuasive. I like those things. Love it, love it. Yeah, I would I would echo that. I would say give people context, make people comfortable, and make your examples as human as possible. There's, there's my list of three. So anyway, Brian, Dan, this has been a great conversation. Thanks to both of you for being here. It's, it's been great, Brian, to, to see you again, and, and, and we really appreciate you being uh, with us. Oh, no, thanks for the opportunity. This was fun. So, uh, so look at look, – and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. We'd love to do it. All right. Thanks again. Well, that does it for this edition of The Message Makeover. We thank our whole team at the Latimer Group, including Whitney Sweeney, Amy Fenalosa, Hannah Morris, and especially our producers, Kendra Ragukis and Brett Slater. We love audience questions, so tweet those questions to us at the Latimer Group. We'll be listening well for them. Until then, see you next time on The Message Makeover. The Message Makeover podcast is presented by the Latimer Group, the experts in persuasive communication, corporate training, and executive coaching delivered with impact. For more information on the Latimer Group and for more episodes of the Message Makeover podcast, look for us on iTunes, Google Play, and online at thelatimergroup.com.